Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernie. And joining me today is Risha Rainey, the founder and host of DaughterDialogues.com and the Daughter Dialogues podcast. She is also the first black state officer in the Maryland State Society Daughters of the American Revolution, D.A.R. Her D.A.R. journey has been featured in the Washington Post, USA Today, NBC News, and on the Colors podcast by WTOP News Radio. The Daughter Dialogues podcast can be found on her website, and she'll say more about this later. Risha Rainey, a leader in the DAR and a direct descendant of President Thomas Jefferson's grandfather, is conducting research as a Harvard University non-resident fellow under the direction of Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. She is exploring the lives of DAR members of color and their ancestry. Now, this is not an official podcast of the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution. So let me give just a warm welcome to Risha Rainey to the show to share more with us about the Daughter Dialogues podcast. Welcome, Risha. Thank you, Bernice, for having me today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and let's just start off with what motivated you to start the DaughterDialogues.com and the Daughter Dialogues podcast? So, Bernice, is so interesting because, as I have stated many times, I am not a genealogy researcher or a historian by any means. I am a mathematician and an engineer, and I feel most comfortable in the world of science. So I didn't do my research. My cousin 
Gus Turpin Granger did the research for 20 years before you could do these things online. You know, he went to archives and to courthouses, et cetera. So he passed on this information to me. And fast forward after I became a member, I was trying to help revitalize my chapter. And my chapter was in severe need of new members. And I came up with this idea to invite a county official to come to an event that we were doing and invite the newspapers. Oh, look at this chapter locally in the DAR. What are they doing? I wanted to kind of showcase our chapter and attract members. Well, the journalist from the Washington Post, that's who I contacted because that's my local newspaper is the Washington Post, said, wait, 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 forget about the county official. He attends events all the time. That's not news. What's news is, wait, you're black and you're in the Daughters of the American Revolution? He said, this is, I have to write a story about this. So they wrote a story and it took up two-thirds of the front page of the metro section of the Washington Post. And from there, there became a flurry of interest in the story of why am I in the DAR as a black, a young black woman, and, of course, my ancestry, which I'm sure you'll ask me about later, from Thomas Jefferson's family. They found that so interesting that it did they ignored my, my publicity <laughs> stunt for the chapter. So then Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who is the, the director of the Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research at Harvard University, and I'm sure most of your listeners know that he is the host of the PBS special, Finding Your Roots, and he's done many other specials, that the center, the Hutchins Center, took notice of this Washington Post article. I connected with him. And it landed me a Harvard fellowship, a non-resident fellowship. And my research project is researching black women who are members of the Daughters of the American Revolution and capturing their present-day narratives of who are these women. I really wanted fundamentally to find out more about them and more focused on them than their ancestors. And that kind of took people for a loop. They're used to when they're in a, a lineage society that they are, or a heritage society, everyone's focused on your ancestors. And I said, nope, this is not a, this is not a patriot's study. It's not a study in genealogy. It's a study of the women who decided to join, the women of color, to join the Daughters of the American Revolution. And then I, because I found out that so many people didn't even know that women of color existed in the DAR, and I felt that this study is so important to tell people about the women who have taken the steps to join and also give them information about their ancestors in the process. This became really apparent to me how much the public does not know that when in 2014 I attended a tribute concert for Marian Anderson, as most people know that the Daughters of the American Revolution did not allow her to perform in 1939. She's a famous opera singer because she's black, because of her race. But since then, the DAR has made many amends, and one of the tribute concerts that they've held among others, was in 2014 at DAR Constitution Hall, and they had an opera concert. And I was there listening in the audience, 
and the audience was mostly white. And the president general, who is the national president of the DAR, came out on stage to greet the audience, and they booed her. They booed her. So I said, oh, my goodness. They booed her because they were still upset about what happened in 1939. And I felt like this is even more of a reason for me to talk about where is the society today. Of course, we will never forget the unfortunate event in 1939, but I also want to educate people about the society being a more diverse society today and where we, where we are now. And again, I cannot speak officially on behalf of the Daughters of the American Revolution. I'm here speaking to you as a researcher in my project and as a personal you know, conversation with you. Okay, wow, what an interesting background, though, that you have. And also, it is a way to educate people about women of color who are members of the DAR. So tell us, first of all, how many daughter dialogues do you have on your podcast? Right now I'm around, right, so I have published 13, 13 ladies I have interviewed and the that was for season one and season two begins at the start of black history month so the first thursday of february i will be releasing starting to release the next season of daughter dialogues and it starts off with bernice the very first known admitted black member to the daughters of the american revolution karen bachelor we are starting off with her story That is going to be, or it is the most significant interview, historically significant interview that I will ever do for Daughter Dialogues because she was the pioneer. She joined in 1977, and we really do a deep dive into, first of all, remember, I want to know, who who is she? What type of person would decide that they want to be the first to join the organization considering its past history? And that. She didn't know of any other black members at the time, I assume, and we'll find that out in the interview. So why would she join the Daughters of the American Revolution? And how did she find a patriot? Because in 1977, black women weren't saying they they had ancestors who contributed to the independence of the United States of America. So it's an interesting interview, and I can't wait to share it with everyone. Well, that's wonderful. As you know, uh, Karen Bachelor has also been on this show. So let's talk about uh, what are some of the common themes amongst the oral histories of the daughters of of color. What have you You uncovered? You know what was interesting because as again as my not being a researcher, I didn't know what to expect. So when people are telling me their stories, it's all brand new to me because I'm not the one who's doing these uh, in depth deep deep genealogy dive. So it's all surprising to me. And then at the very end of season one, I discovered, wow, there's some common threads that are running through these stories. So as a mathematician, I like statistics and kind of correlating information, and that's really fun to me. So on the very last episode, I called it season one reflection. I you know, I, I wanted to come up with something to kind of say this was season one, this is what happened. And when I started doing that and pulling the stories together, I found a very stark um, similarities between the stories. So some of them are, for example, there's a lot of untold history about white men who supported and passed on wealth 
to their enslaved black women. So they had relationships or unions uh, with these women that were enslaved, and they had children with them, sometimes up to 17 children or more, and they passed down their wealth. So it wasn't just having the the history that we have heard, okay, there was a slave master that forced uh, a woman in bondage into having children with him, but then some of these relationships, they have oral history that was passed down saying that they didn't hear of any type of forced relationship, that their ancestors, the stories that they passed down, that they were very well cared for and treated very well. And not only that, that these white men passed down their wealth to them and the children that they had with them. And some, in one, a couple of cases, for example, in the case of Michelle Campbell, she she heard of her ancestors talking about how there was a white family in the city and a black family in the countryside or rural, and there was an Uncle Jesse that would bring over cinnamon rolls. So they had fond memories of these white men that were taking care of them. And then Joyce Mosley, her ancestor, Richard Moray, and lived as a husband and wife with Cremona, who was mixed race, although it was illegal then, he arranged for 198 acres of land to be transferred to her, making her one of the richest women in Philadelphia. And I'll tell you who else was one of the wealthiest women in the state was Bianca Alexander's ancestor, Marie Therese Coincoin. Now, this is down the Creole community. Mm-hmm. She she was a former slave, Marie Therese Coincoin, and she had what's called a placage relationship with a Frenchman. His name was Claude Thomas Pierre Matoire, and he passed down land and slaves to her, and she was one of the wealthiest women in Louisiana, and she owned slaves herself. She bought this a lot of them to give you context that she she owned the slaves because they were her family, and she wanted to protect them and for no one else to buy them, but she was able to buy her family to keep keep them in her you know estate. What a fascinating story. What about patriots of color? Patriots of color are very rare, but that was one of the, the, the common themes that I've, I found as well. So that, can you believe that the daughters that I have identified of color and the daughters of the American Revolution, if you go on daughterdialogues.com and use the the filter section on the daughters page if you filter by the patriot ethnicity you will see that the overwhelming majority of daughters of color descend from white men there are very few that have joined that descend from patriots of color now as a genealogist i'm sure you will say that the the paperwork is probably more challenging I'm telling you the statistics that I've seen is, or the documentation is more challenging, but the statistics that I've seen is that the women who have joined successfully or have taken that step mostly descend from white patriots of color. So we do have a couple of them, and I was able to interview them and find out about their stories. And one of them, she debunked a family myth that was Stephanie Miller, they thought, well, the white side of her family always thought that their 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 ancestor was white. And she had to tell them, no, James Dew was a man of color and that he fought in the American Revolution. And um, 
I'm not sure how well that went over with, with the family once they found that out. But that was a history that was denied, and she wants to make sure that he is always remembered as a patriot of color. And Alilia Bundles. So Alilia Bundles is the great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker. And many will know that Madam C.J. Walker was a hair care industry pioneer, and she is known as the first female self-made millionaire in the United States of America. Not just black millionaire, just a self-made female millionaire in the United States. And she, and Madam C.J. Walker was also an activist and, she, and a philanthropist. And there's a Netflix series that is based on the biography that Alilia Alilia Bundles wrote about Madam C.J. Walker. Well, Alilia's ancestor was a patriot of color. Okay. Some other themes that I found, there was a couple of other things that, themes that I found through the stories were, there were uh, surprisingly, there were men of color who were with white women. So in the early 17 and 1800s, remember I just talked about James Dew being a patriot of color. He was living with a white woman in the late 1700s and early 1800s. I'm not sure how he could do that and survive. And then uh, we had Charlotte Chatfield. In 1871, Bernice, her white great-great-great-grandmother, Mary Pendergrass, had a child with a black man, Abe Horton. And that is incredible in 1871. You have really uncovered some stories here. Now, yes. let me just talk to you about this. So when you are recruiting, or how do you recruit, number one, do the women have a set of questions that they are to respond to, or do you just say, talk, tell me your story? So recruiting was a challenge for a while because there is no count there's no the daughters of the american revolution does not keep an official record of race of its members it's there's no place for it on the application so we do not know how many women of color are members of the dar so how there's so there's no list there's no contact list where you can go and say i'll just reach out to all the women of color in the dar so it takes a bit of networking and word of mouth and Mm-hmm. Most importantly, it takes trust. So I had to gain the trust of the women of why am I doing this? What am I doing? What, what am I going to do with it? That took a couple of years. So the project stalled for a while, and then I had some takers and some brave first women that went first in the first group, and I think people see the vision now. And so it's become a little easier because there is a website. So I was I was able to actually populate my website, DaughterDialogues.com, with the pictures and the bios and the stories of these women. And so that's how it's happening. And when I do send out an invitation to participate, these women have to go through a gauntlet of questions because I want to know all about their stories. It's like a 72 page, 72 question, 72 question um, form that I send them wow. that they need to ask going from birth all the way through childhood, adulthood, their profession, their career. Why did they join the DAR? Typically, the interviews or what I'm going for is is it's 
compartmentalized in three sections, three buckets of information, as I like to call it. The first part of their interview is about them from their childhood and their parents and their profession. Then the second part of their interview we transitioned to, how did they discover that they had a Revolutionary War ancestor? And are there other discoveries, not even related to that side of the family of the Revolutionary War patriot, are there other family discoveries and amazing stories or notable stories that they want to share. So I, I want to hear all of the, the research that they've done as far as their outcomes and what has been surprising. And then the last part, the third part of the interview or bucket of information is about the Daughters of the American Revolution. Why did they join? What has their experience been like? Have they gotten other family members to join? Now, one of the things I noticed, now, first of all, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> that <you're asking laughs> it really people. is. That is absolutely right. 72. So, what, so are they putting this information in writing to you? Or are they yes, they do. So, Bernice, that, so both. So the, the reason why I sent out a 72, it's a pre-interview questionnaire. Why do I take them through that? Because this is a research project. It's not a podcast. It really isn't. It was Michelle Weary, which is another daughter of color, suggested that since I was documenting oral history, recording oral histories anyway, which are going to be going into the Harvard archives and the library at Harvard, why not distribute them in a format which is more easily accessible to the public? Because that is the purpose of this, is to disseminate this information to the public. So it was a great idea that she suggested, although I had never podcasted before, and she suggested this mid-June, and she said, why not launch for 4th of July, Independence Day, very fitting. And I agreed, but I had to learn all of what you are a pro at, Bernice, as far as recording and <laughs> editing and documenting. So not only is that, I had to do that in two weeks and bring up, get the equipment and bring it up and learn it. Not only that, but since it is a research project, it's not as simple as having an interview and hanging up the phone and being done or hanging up the, the record or stopping the recording. I need to document this because it is a research project. So it's very targeted to uh, a more scholarly evaluation or look into, again, the, the lives of these women and their ancestors. And then after so, that, they fill it mm -hmm. in, they type it in. You asked me, like, do they, they write it? Yes, they type in their answers, and then we actually go over it in the recording. So when you hear the recording, you hear us kind of going over the same things that they already provided us. But, of course, it isn't verbatim. I'm not going to ask them the 72 questions down the line. But it gives me an idea of if there's something there for us to really, really dig into or just kind of forget about that idea that, you know, it didn't apply to them. Now, you, since you mentioned it's, it is a research project, do you have an end as far as how many uh, daughters are you hoping to interview? Yes. And that's a good when question. will this project end? Thank you. So that's one thing I do want the daughters to understand that there will be an end date. Unfortunately, I won't be doing this forever because I'm. 
you know, this costs money to do. I'm not getting, I'm not getting paid, and I have to pay for the hosting software, and as you know, and all these other things, and I'm not generating any revenue off of it. So I will have to go back to my day job. I'm an entrepreneur. I own a business called Inside Corporation, which is a systems engineering company, and in fact, right now it's ranked in the top four percent of women-owned businesses in the nation. And I kind of want to keep that status. I worked very hard for it. So Certainly. right now I'm kind of on, yeah, I'm on a sabbatical right now. I've taken a little hiatus from the business to totally focus on this. So there will be a day one. I will need to return to making, <laughs> keeping my finances going. Mm-hmm. But the end game, so it will be, it was accepted, officially accepted for deposit in Radcliffe's Schlesinger Library Archives at Harvard University. So when I accepted this fellowship, there was no end game. They don't they don't direct you. They want you to they don't want to stifle you and tell you what you need to do with your project. That what kind of derail creativity I assume. So it was the world was my oyster. How, what do you want to do with it? The only marching orders I got was to disseminate the re, the research that you are collecting or documenting, disseminate it and disseminate it wi- widely. So that's my objective is to get the word out as far and wide as I can. So thank you for having me today. That's helping me meet my objectives of the fellowship. And I asked them, well, how how many do you want me to do? And they gave me a random number. She said it's not based on any scientific (laughs) number at all. 25 they gave me as a minimum goal. I'm at 13. So I will definitely get to 25 after season two. Will I continue after that? It just depends, right, on how where how financially hurt that I am at that moment. Will something surprising come up where there's, you know, funding that comes up for this and that can supplement the income? I don't know. So if it if that happens, then sure, I would continue. I'm enjoying it. I just need to also be practical about it. But the, I'm so excited about the Schlesinger Library. I'm so excited about it because do you know that it's the Schlesinger Library on the history of women in America, and it's arguably the world's largest archive devoted to the history of both individual women and women's organizations. And they have the papers of Amelia Earhart, Susan B. Anthony, like the baby book of Amelia Earhart, and they also have the papers of Angela Davis. As you know, she was a black activist who was jailed in 1970 on charges, on murder charges, sparking a international free Angela campaign, but she was later acquitted by an all-white jury in 1972. So our collection of oral histories will be housed in the same. Well, you know what? It's really good to hear that you – you have a place where this information will be housed. I want to know, however, because you have these questionnaires, are you putting these questionnaires together in a book, a publication, so that when you turn everything over to the library, they have all the docu- the written documentation, plus they have the audio uh, conversations so- that you've had with these uh, women? Right. So, you know, what's interesting, Bernice, I was going to submit all their questionnaires, but sometimes the ladies before the recording, they want to kind of rethink some of the things that they wrote. 
So mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. that I'm going to submit the actual written answers because they okay. they had a time to think about it and maybe they don't want to share something or maybe they want to phrase it differently. Then, but guess what I'm very excited about? Now, it's not set in stone, but the the library said that they will transcribe these recordings. That oh, is amazing okay. because yes. that is a, a very expensive process, and it's not something I could do on my own because I forgot the the number of hours it takes to you know transcribe per minute of recording. I don't know that, but it was so it was so labor intensive. There's no way that I could type up everything these women are saying over hours and hours of recording. So they are they're so interested in this project that they are going to I guess uh, have shoulder the cost of transcribing these these documents. So people will be able to do a keyword search in a library uh, archives, like in the library system, maybe like ProQuest or something, and they will be able to look it up. Wow, that is wonderful. Well, now I noticed that some of your daughters, uh, some of your daughter dialogues, you have a part one and part two. Is there a reason why you may interview a person more than one time or have two parts to their interview? Right, so that you may appreciate as a podcast host. I there's a couple of reasons why I did it, Bernice. One was logistically. I when I started this, I had no recordings in the bank, meaning I was dedicated to publishing the same time every week because that's what is recommended per industry good practice, standard practice, is to make sure you go live or or publish at the same time every week. So I was committed to this Thursday crack of dawn <laughs> publication time, and I didn't have anything in the bank. So week to week, I was just running trying to get the next person to fill out their questionnaire, to, to meet with them, get the recording, edit it. I don't put it out raw. I edit this. And at the beginning, it was taking me 12 plus hours, 18 hours to edit just one episode. And it's edited very heavily for just for, because I record so long to get the content that I want for the research study, I need to cut out a lot of things that aren't really applicable and bring it down to a reasonable length. And that takes a while to make sure it makes it historical, have a historical value to it, and to have the audio to be clear enough for archival quality because the the library has very strict standards of they want me to do an uncompressed file at so many gigahertz. And so I have to, I can't just record over some people say, let's just meet on Zoom, but it doesn't have the same bit rate and all these other technical things that I have to meet. And so I'm editing for sound quality and all these things. So I wasn't able to keep up, Bernice. So there were some weeks I was like, oh, my gosh, okay, her recording is so long, I could split it in two and buy myself a week (laughs) to catch up for the other one because there's another industry guideline that says maybe keep your pocket, if you're going to 
publish on a weekly basis, keep your podcast between 30, 20 to 45 minutes was like max for a weekly podcast. And some of these ladies are running an hour and a half. So I said maybe it will be more palatable to the listeners if I split them in two and give them 45 and 45 minutes, two segments instead of a whole hour and a half. So it was both. I was playing with – is that better for a listener to hear half now, half later? And, like, is it easier for them to swallow if they see it's only 45 minutes? Or will they run away if they see an hour and a half and they'll just skip that episode? So I played with that and um, for both reasons. Okay. So since you talked about the listeners, what kind of responses have you received from the general public after listening to your podcast? That's a good question. So it was very amazing. So I, I included this on the the reflection episode, as I called it, for season one. At the wrap-up for season one, I actually included some of the listener comments. And you made a guest appearance, Bernice, on the, that episode where you gave your comments as well. But the listeners are... The white listeners are, a lot of them are members of the DAR because, of course, this resonates most with them. I'm starting to get some listeners that are not members, which is great because this is supposed to be disseminated to people who don't know this information. But DAR members don't know this as well in many cases. These histories aren't being told. So we welcome all listeners as long as I'm disseminating the information. And they, the white listeners, have felt very interested in knowing how is it if genealogy is hard for them or difficult for them to find a particular record they assume that it'll be even more difficult for women of color and they want to know how did we overcome or how i shouldn't say we because i didn't do my research how did the ladies overcome these challenges of finding very difficult documents in 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 documenting these difficult lineages and some of them also have taken a liking to or or have an affinity towards the women and their story so this bernice i was very nervous about not focusing just on the nuts and bolts of the genealogy because I figured that the people who would gravitate to the podcast will want to hear research techniques. How do they do it? Tell me all the like, <laughs> all the things that you did to discover your paperwork. And I knew it was going to be less about that. Of course, they have a little, you know, that's a third of the recording. But a good chunk is about who are the personal stories of these women. One woman who grew up, the farmer's daughter, Shari Phillips, grew up on a farm in the farmhouse and went to a one-room schoolhouse. And tell Jupiter, who's 96 years old, and her growing up on a millionaire's estate when having free reign of the property when the owners weren't home and and listening to all of these 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 stories that made these women who they are today and then there's holly henderson who is the mother of three children on the autistic spectrum a lot of women and men really connected with that story because they're raising autistic children or have them in their families say their grandchildren so i'm finding that the audiences are really connecting to the women themselves and the black women that are listening, they're, they are being inspired to maybe they can join the DAR too. Maybe it isn't something that they should just rule out. And I have gotten a lot of feedback that said that they are now inspired, if they aren't a member already, to try. And, of course, the women of color, the daughters of color, are listening to their peers and hearing their stories and enjoying them as well. 
Well, I'm enjoying just listening to you because I I think that you have set the tone for having women come on to share their stories and to inspire others. And this is what the daughter of the daughters I think the daughter dialogue is really uh you know you're you're meeting your objective uh as Thank far you. as gathering this information. So you mentioned uh 2021 season two and that you're going to start off with Karen Bachelor. Do we have yes. other exciting women to listen to during season two that you can tell us about or you want to keep it a secret? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm still editing down the others, so I don't know their information right off the top of my head. But I do also know that there is one woman whose ancestor she had two Revolutionary War Patriot husbands. Okay, that's all right. So maybe she at the same time, Bernice, she never oh, divorced one oh, of them. Wow. She had two Revolutionary War Patriot husbands. So that's a good story that I can't wait to share with everyone. Oh wow, that's a story I know we want to hear about. Well, we're yes. getting close to the end of the show. Do you have any parting words you'd like to share with us? I'd like to say thank you, Bernice, for laying down the foundation. You have come well before I have to this area of sharing genealogy of persons of color in the podcast format. So I am very humble in your presence. So thank you again for And I know that you have also interviewed many of the ladies that I have been talking to as well. So thank you for allowing me to stand on your shoulders and talking about standing on shoulders. Uh, the daughters of color are very proud of our very first elected woman of color to the vice presidency, Kamala Harris. And of course she is of both black and East Indian descent, and that really it, it affirms what we've what we have already known is that the women of color can achieve such they're talented and they're qualified for these positions and and they have been a part of the women who came before her, even though Kamala is the the daughter of immigrants she her mother had her live as a black child because she knew that the world or the United States would see her, the society would see her as a black girl or a black woman. So she wanted her prepared for that. So these daughters of color, our ancestors helped establish the United States of America. And I think it's affirming for us to see that now there is a daughter that we we, we want to claim for ourselves as well to say that, that there's a woman of color. <laughs> there's a woman of color at the helm or second in command now. And it's a very validating moment for us. It certainly is. Well, Risa, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for those people that are very interested, how can they contact you if they want to share their story with you? At daughterdialogues.com, so it's daughter singular, dialogues plural.com, there's a contact form on the front on the front page. That email comes straight to me. I don't have a staff. <laughs> I don't have a support team, so it comes right to my inbox. Anyone can reach me there, and they can hear the podcast on any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or they can simply go to daughterdialogues.com and click the Dialogues tab, and they're there as well. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing this wonderful information with me and with the audience and everyone else. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Thank you so much, Risha Rainey. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.